Welcome back to Pas de Deux, listeners. I'm your host, Clara. And I'm your host, Jessica. It feels like a really long time again since we've been in the studio recording. Yeah, it has been. This time over a month because we've been spacing our guests out. Right. The release schedule by one month, but for some reason there's more time that fell in between this recording. Yeah, with vacation schedules. Yeah. Namely mine, <laughs> I guess. But yeah, for the summer, as you listeners might have noticed, we've been releasing episodes just once a month. We will be back to twice a month coming this fall, which is basically coming right up after this. Uh, you'll hear this episode released on September 1st, and then we should be back to every two weeks. So I'm sure everyone's relieved. <laughs> More product of content. But yeah, we have like a whole summer of, of catching up to do because we haven't been able to do a catch up in a really long time for many episodes. Yeah. So um, how has your summer been going? Well, my summer has been fantastic. I've surprisingly seen a lot of dance. I say surprisingly because for the first month of the summer, June, I was in production for my first feature film that I've produced, Snatchers. And that was quite the wild ride. I'd been working probably 14, 16 hour days all of May, pretty much the same in June when we were actually filming. But I had bought tickets to two Eiffman Ballet performances, I think in January, because I'm a nerd for the Eiffman specifically. And they don't come that often. They've only, I think they come to NYC every few years from St. Petersburg. So I bought those tickets and I knew it would interfere with production, but I just thought, I'm going to do my best. And indeed, I was able to make it to both. I just left set for a little while to see the show and then went back to set. And they were so good. They were so great, as always. I love the Eiffman because they bring so much drama and narrative to the stage. There's none of this abstract whatever, mm -hmm. which, you know, I don't love as much. I really like somebody who tells a powerful story and hits you hard with the emotions associated with it. And they just do such a good job. And the choreography is so great the whole way through. Oh, I loved it. Totally worth it. Yeah. You saw a lot of ballet this summer because I remember seeing your schedule in June when you were asking people if they wanted to go with you. Yeah. And you had like four ballet performances or something. I might be over-exaggerating on your yeah. schedule. And I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> I know. Like for the busiest time of my life in production, I still had those two shows and then after that, I saw a few also because I had looked at ABT's calendar and was like, oh, I'm so interested and so curious about some of them. And I've taken to doing these like long dramatic Facebook posts after every time I see a show and I have thoughts about it, which is most times. Like I saw Whipped Cream by ABT, which I can't even pretend. I, I totally hate it. I mean, the dancing is great. I, obviously, ABT dancers are really wonderful and they haven't become any less so, but I was not a fan of that show. Very glad I saw it. I was really curious. So yeah, I, I definitely saw a lot. Not sure how much I'll see coming up because I'm launching a freelance career for the first time and I don't really know funding-wise where I'll be. I'll probably pull back on seeing dance unless it's super cheap seats for a little while. So I'm glad that I front-loaded it all in the beginning of my summer and at least got in a lot of dance for, for the time being. Very cool. Yeah, and you have some crazy updates about dance in your life and mm -hmm. academics, I should say. Yeah, I have been taking a break from ballet this year, actually. I haven't seen anything. Yeah, um, in 2017. You yeah, I don't think something. I've seen any ballet this year. Uh -huh. But I go through phases where I'm all or nothing with anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's me. But yeah, this summer I went back to school 
to Wesleyan University to participate in the Institute for Curatorial Practice and Performance, also known as ICPP Mm -hmm. for short. And it was very interesting, also very intense, 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day for 16 days with one day off. (laughs) And in the second week, we had like a presentation or something due nearly every day. So it was totally intense all the way to the end. Yeah. Um, But it's really amazing. It was really great for me to engage in dance literature, but also critical theory and performance studies in a way that I haven't previously. And these are all topics that I've always been interested in. And I even have books on my shelf that I'm using now for my research, but I just haven't for whatever reason read these books before. Hmm. And it's been really great. I'm expanding my worldview on dance in general and some of the critical questions facing the dance world and Hmm. curation in general. Yeah, what exactly is the goal of a participant in the program, which I understand is like the top program in this discipline? Well, it's it's a unique program. It's the only program of its kind that is interdisciplinary and focused Hmm. on curation of live arts. Ah, live arts in general. Oh, that's right. You've been telling me it's not just focused on dance. You had people who coming were coming from the theater world and other places, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, people come from all over, and there are a lot of participants who have jobs currently in the museum world, but mm. also program live arts, live performance. And mm. I am the only person in the program that is not working at an arts institution. Wow. And I come from that social work background, but I'm looking at a lot of performance studies through a social work methodology, and that's my interest in the program. And it's always been my interest in general with community-based performance. So does that mean, uh, what's your goal, I guess, from the program? Is it to get into being a curator of, of dance somewhere? I really am just interested in researching and engaging in the literature. That's my short-term goal. Long term, I would eventually like to move from the social service world to perhaps more of the arts world. But but even then, I don't mind if I don't have a full-time job in the arts. You know, anything that links my social work and social justice focus with the arts is just what I'm interested in. And that's what I'm researching at the moment. And researching community curation models and its relationship to social justice. What does that mean? Like what, how, yeah, what's an example? How do they intersect? So basically looking at audience, outreach, and engagement, not from just the perspective of social inclusion, Mm -hmm. but from the perspective of creating a socially just institution, which takes as its primary focus the idea of making underrepresented populations feel more welcome and feel like they Mm. have some sort of ownership of the programming. And whether that be the actual arts programming itself or perhaps more of the education that happens around the programming so that more audiences feel more entry points and connections to the work or connections with the work. Anything that basically makes 
making different communities and diverse communities come together and sort of take ownership of a public space so that wow. you're creating this idea of plurality rather than just social inclusion. Wow. So you're studying now the ways in which various communities have, have done that, have included the community and underrepresented members in, in dance and yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, art works. I'm reading about emerging curation practices, but yeah. I am actually starting as my entry point into the research about different artists and how they approach mm-hmm. community performance and social practice and the methodologies and the relational processes that they're using to either make a political point or create change in a community. So I'm starting there and then working my way eventually to community curation, though it's all related. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty unique perspective in your class, probably, right? Yeah. I mean, community performance and socially collaborative performance and participatory performance have always been Hmm. a big focus in the live arts world. So. It's it's there. I mean, people are definitely highly involved with this type of work, and it's becoming even more and more prominent now. Mm. Um, and important in the dance world. I think we've talked to, or it's come up in a number of conversations we've had, that dance is not a very equalizing, at least ballet, playing field sometimes because of how much it costs to go through training and just things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of exclusion there. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting stuff to unpack. We'll have to, in every check-in, we'll have to like check in on your research and what you've learned. It's <laughs> been interesting. It's coming along very slowly but surely. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, full-time job and also full-time podcast plus full-time summer Yeah. plus uh, <laughs> school. It's not easy being a New Yorker. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but we love it. Well, yeah, I'm ready to dive into kind of figuring out what's going on this fall and try to get myself into more classes, even if I'm not seeing quite as many shows, at least try to get back into class as always. I went to one class this summer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but then I went on vacation. But I did I did force myself into one, so I'm going to do some more of that. Better yeah. than I can say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, you've had your hands full with some other stuff. So, yeah, we'll have to keep checking in. Mm-hmm. And today, we actually have a really interesting new guest, Fran Kermser, who comes from many different worlds and spans many different disciplines. So we will introduce her to you guys. Welcome to another episode of Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica. And I'm your host, Clara. And we are back with Fran Kermser, who has spent 20 years working as a dance producer and consultant, working with artists such as Shen Wei, Doug Verone and Donna Uchizono, and Francesca Harper, among many others. She began dancing professionally at the age of 14 and later started her company, Fran Kermser Productions. Her company provides counseling, raises funds, and creates promotional campaigns for emerging artists and produces new work. She's a two-time Tony Award-winning producer and Tony voter as well. In 2009, She conceived of a sports series for stage to explore themes of resilience and drive after the 2008 financial crash, which included the play Lombardi, now slated to be a major motion picture. 
She's currently producing American Scoreboard, a reading series of verbatim Senate and congressional hearings that reflect the decisions of the Trump administration. The series occurs two months and is free and open to the public. Fran has taught master classes in producing dance at Columbia University and NYU Tisch School of Dance, among other institutions across the country. Her passion is coaching emerging artists and empowering them to realize their work to stage. She is now a social dancer and a mom. Welcome, Fran. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So we'll start from the beginning like we always do. How did you get into dance and create your own life of dance? You know, like so many dancers, I danced for as long as my body would go. And then I was injured. And I didn't want to leave the art form or the arts in general. So I started to pursue absolutely anything I could find on the other side of the stage, you know. And I was fortunate to have walked into different situations and basically begged for an opportunity, you know, in each one of them. One was at Lincoln Center. One was at an institution called Musical Theater Works. And others were dance companies that I admired. And many of them, you know said no. (laughs) But just a few of them, enough of them said yes and let me work on different projects. So I was hired to do these different projects and learned on the job and got paid to learn, which was phenomenal in different areas, including fundraising and press and marketing. So that is how I kind of segued from dance into what it is that I do now, which is really production work. Hmm. About what age were you when you stopped dancing and started pursuing these other things? Yeah, I started the first professional job that I did as a dancer was around the age of 14. And I was, you know, pretty much 11 years older than that, you know, 25 when I had to stop, 25, 26, somewhere around there. Okay. Wow. That's, I mean, that's so brave at that age to just walk into different companies and different organizations and ask if they need help. (laughs) You know, it's so interesting that you say that because back then, and now I'm completely dating myself, we did not have the internet as prevalent a tool Mm. as it is now. I mean, it was just the beginning, right? So we could not hide behind the email and social media and writing people for an opportunity. So, you know, you just kind of had to go out there Mm. and put yourself in front of who it was that you wanted to work with. Um, And, you know, for us dancers, as you two know, because I know you're both, you both have dance in your background. That's something that we're trained in as dancers Mm. because it's physical and you put your physical being into the situation. So it actually wasn't so, it didn't feel so radical as it would maybe for somebody else who's trained in a different kind of craft. For us, we physically go out and we do what we what we need to do to accomplish our goals with our bodies. So it seemed pretty mm-hmm. natural to me, but I get that comment a lot when I teach and, and share that part of my early process with mm-hmm. younger students. Yeah, and actually I think some part of me, despite the resources we have at our fingertips with the internet, thinks that it's still the best strategy 
to be more physical and more personal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it makes you really stand out. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the biggest pieces of advice that I personally feel that young artists can embrace is just that, you know, Mm -hmm. get off the internet and get, get personally in front, get in front of people and don't be afraid to, you know, have that conversation, get on the phone and get off of your email and just show up and dive in. Because I think, again, it makes you stand out. And also those are skills that you need to do any job, any job and to make things happen. And so I think it's very interesting as well as I teach master classes at different schools at, at Fordham and Columbia and NYU and across the country. This new generation seems to be kind of almost anti-social media. They're getting off of Facebook. They're getting off of Twitter. They still like Instagram. Instagram is still the thing, which is great for dance because dance is so visual Mm -hmm. that Instagram's a perfect, you know, social media platform for dance. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting. They're kind of over it, you know, and I think that's a good thing. And it speaks to what we were just talking about, just getting out there and creating relationships with other human beings (laughs) in your work life. Real Mm -hmm. relationships. Wow. Very cool. So early on, you had a lot of diverse experiences with management. How did you make the transition then to production? And how did that interest come about? It was very organic. So I started doing all of these different freelance jobs and picking up skills in these different areas of press and marketing and fundraising and and production work. And then When I was injured, I didn't tell any of the dance companies that I had danced with or artists that I had worked with that I was injured because you know as dancers, you just don't want to tell anyone that you're injured. And you always have this hope that like you're going to be able to get it all back together, Mm. (laughs) you know. But when I finally admitted to myself that that was it, I did start to let people know that I was doing this other kind of work. And I got Mm. called from all different artists that I had worked with, which was phenomenal because when I was dancing, I never got into the dream job that I felt was my dream job, which was a big company, you know, a dancer in a big company. And I just wasn't really cut out for that. I think I was good sometimes. I was a good, solid dancer sometimes, but I certainly wasn't the best one in the room. You know, Mm -hmm. I worked really hard and I could pick things up quickly often, but I wasn't going to get into that big company. I was not good enough. So what was phenomenal was as I started doing all these other things, the the very many artists that I worked with and companies that I worked with hired me to work with them on the other side of the stage on all of these things, the fundraising and putting the company together, the infrastructure and, the, and, and press and marketing. And so it was a nice confirmation of my life journey up to that point. So I didn't have to feel mm. bad anymore for only being in, you know, for never getting the big company job, right? It sort of served me. And that I had to incorporate. It grew. And at my height, I had 206 companies that I was working with and a staff of six people. Yeah. Across the country, (laughs) not just here. So all over. We really... We really were That's digging in all the time. Yeah, it was thri- It was a thriving, thriving wow. business. And then 
I got the producing bug, and mm-hmm. s- simultaneously, 9-11 happened. Oh, so what oh, happened wow. for companies was they had to completely restructure how they were raising money, how they were getting work up, how they were producing things. And that's when, instead of a service organization, my company, Frank Kermser Productions, became a consulting organization because mm. I could train the staff that was already there for less money at a company than them taking on more administrators to hire, you know, which is essentially what they did. They would hire my company and, mm-hmm. you know, the administrators that worked with me to execute things. And instead I would, I would train their staff so they could build it in house. Oh, so, you train the staff of your client organization. Exactly. Oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Yep. Um, and it cost them less and there was a huge need. So actually the number of clients that I worked with at that time went up from, from that 200, but I was no longer a service provider. So I was, mm-hmm. I was doing more consulting consulting. And I started to produce at that time too small projects downtown in the West Village. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Eventually you went to a capacity building approach Mm -hmm. when you're training these artists and organizations to be able to build it in-house, which is so important for the field. Absolutely. And I just was responding to what was happening at the time. You know, when 9-11 mm-hmm. happened, a lot of funding organizations froze for a while. A really? few went away entirely. It was mm-hmm. always a big question mark how much space was going to be dedicated to arts and editorial because there were other things that were going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's always so hard for arts in the first place to grab that editorial space. So, yeah, I just restructured based on what the needs were. And I didn't worry so much that, oh, oh no, I won't be making as much money. I just didn't even think of that. And actually, I ended up making a whole lot more money because wow. there was there was such a need. Everyone, no one knew what to do at the time. And because I was now consulting, it allowed me to get around to, to more people and help more more artists. So it was mm-hmm. kind of a win-win all the way around. Yeah. And I love your story of how you had wanted to be in a big company, but instead it sounds like you danced with multiple companies when you were a dancer. And yes. I think that must be one thing that's so important for dancers to keep in mind, especially as a dancer, because you never know when you're going to time out. I mean, first, you're going to time out early compared to other careers, and second, If you have an injury, like many eventually sustain, um, it can be career ending. So I think it's really good to keep in mind, you know, whatever you've done, even if you haven't achieved your dream, there's probably a resource there to tap into if you look at what you actually have access to. And that's so great that you kind of took the opportunity to contact all of these companies you had worked with and spin that into a new career. You sort of worked with what you what you had in a great way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is something that is a point of intrigue for dancers to take a look at. Hmm. I think that sometimes there's some kind of stigma that dancers aren't as Hmm. smart, you know, as people in other professions. I think that may come from the fact that we're not speaking most of the time, mm-hmm. we're moving our bodies, right? We are speaking, yeah. we're speaking loudly with our bodies, but we're not articulating with words. Yeah. And so huh. for a lot of dancers, I think it's hard to speak up and 
-hmm. that is there. And I think it's important to understand that actually it's quite the contrary. Oh, yeah. That when you're a dancer, what I have found is, you know, now in my career raising millions of dollars for a Broadway show, and I'm not bragging here, this is Mm -hmm. every dancer will find, you are the hardest working person in the room, period. I am the Mm -hmm. hardest working person in the room. I will outwork anybody in there because we kill ourselves to get a tendu right yeah right (laughs) we kill ourselves to get one little piece of movement nailed down Mm. and never feel like we do right so there's all of that to bring with us and then we're constantly Mm -hmm. having to think outside of the box especially if you start engaging move out of ballet and more into a modern dance form you're constantly breaking the rules you're constantly Mm. looking at things on all sides and you have to exercise your brain to such a level I mean you can't just phone it in the movement vocabulary the way you know you might think you can in ballet which of course mm. you really can't but you know <laughs> it's, it's set you know as opposed to contemporary dance uh, there's so much variation you constantly need to be thinking and and thinking outside of the box and I think those things are those two things are what make you succeed today right I yeah. mean that is what uh, how anyone can thrive at anything you know totally so. That's so interesting. I've always noticed speaking with dancers that they all seem uniformly like (laughs) highly intelligent, like above average intelligent. And I've always wondered why. I mean, why would it just happen that this one group of people who does this thing that turn Mm -hmm. up? But I think it, you know, is because of the way you're working your brain. Yeah, absolutely. And it is really nice to hear you talk about those two themes, Mm. really hardworking, but also thinking outside the box. And that is definitely something I've noticed among dancers. And I would like to say among myself. Mm. (laughs) Yes. Because of your dance. Yeah. Yeah. Because of that background. Yeah. Yeah. So we are also here to talk about Fran's new book, A Life in Dance, which she co-authored with Rebecca Sten. And This book really relates to a lot of themes that we have talked about previously in other episodes that we've just touched on with other guest artists that we spoke to. Mm -hmm. And it's a really nice, I mean, it's actually called A Life in Dance, A Practical Guide. And it's something that I wish was around when I had first entered the New York City dance scene. And... I find it's a really nice resource book. Toward the back of the book, it provides a lot of just practical lists of resources for dancers to be able to navigate different systems in New York City and systems within the dance field. And it also compiles together a lot of artists and their stories and how they came to the New York City dance scene and sort of what it took for them to ground themselves and find, quote-unquote, a life in dance. So I really enjoyed reading it, and I think a lot of dancers and anyone new to the New York City dance scene would find a lot of value in it, or any dance scene in the world, really. And in the book, you mentioned toward the beginning that you gave an assignment to your students to find books on resources or advice for dancers, but that they couldn't find very many resources or articles or books. So I wanted to start with that question. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do you think 
that has been the case? Yeah, that's a really good question, a really interesting question. So my co-author, Rebecca Sten, had invited me to speak to her class at the New School for years. And she mm-hmm. always said, oh, we need a book for dancers. We need a book for dancers. And she had given her students in the class this assignment that you just referenced to find books on dance. And nobody could find any of them. And her class is comprised of dancers, but also theater students and film students. And so it's this multidisciplined class and there are always these books for everybody else, you know, for the actors and for the film students and the directors and nothing for dance. And every single year she every year she would say to me, "We have to put this in a book. We have I've been I've been thinking about it. I've been working on it. We have to. And so finally this last go around, I said, "Rebecca, let's just do this book. We've been talking about this for so long." And yes, this question came up of why are there no books. And I think it's intrinsic in the form, right? Because we just learn body to body. You know, Mm -hmm. so much of learning dance is studying the body, the physical movement in front of you from the master, the teacher, and then you're learning like that. And there is an oral tradition of explanation, of course, but that doesn't translate into literature. It's not like the theater arts where you're dealing with scripts and words and screenplays for film. And, you know, so So it's just kind of intrinsic in the art form. And I also think that dance is the least established as a business. Mm -hmm. Um, There are no unions protecting the talent. Uh, So therefore, there's not as much money in dance. And so Mm. a publisher taking a risk on publishing a dance book, why would they do it when so much of our world these days revolves around what's the bottom line financially? It just doesn't seem like a good choice for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why there haven't been. But I will say I'm a little older than you ladies. And when I started, there was a book called The Poor Dancer's Almanac. And it was like Mm -hmm. our Bible. It was a hot pink book. And it said Poor Dancer's Almanac. And it had all of these resources in it. And this was pre-internet. So in our book, we have the back half of the book, as you referenced, is a guide with a lot of links to Mm. places online where you can get answers to questions like, like, where are funding resources? Where can I book rehearsal space? Where can I look for a studio like the one we're in right now? And back then, that Poor Dancer's Almanac had all of these things in writing. So I think it must have been incredibly difficult for them to keep that updated. And eventually, it just became out an outdated resource. But it was marvelous, mm-hmm. and we all used it like daily. So we hope that this can be used in that way as well. And really, it's been 20 years since there's been a resource like that. But I think the most valuable aspect of this book are those 40 stories from the 40 dancers. Because at the end of the day, I always feel like what I do is storytelling, whether I'm producing, creating, producing a piece of theater, or it's film, or I'm working with an emerging artist, helping them move forward in their career. I'm constantly telling stories, and it's how we really make sense of the world, right, and our lives. And how many times do we think about when we're helping somebody, we will reference a story, something that we've experienced, you know, or reference an example of somebody's life that helps somebody. That is really what we're going for in the book. And so to hear somebody like Ellis Wood, who's a working choreographer and mom of three describe how she (laughs) 
deals with motherhood and and her career is very valuable to a lot of people to listen to Philip Montana, who danced with Shen Wei, talk about how he is very much still a dancer, but ended up also becoming a doctor. And he still teaches dance at Dartmouth and makes new work, but he's a practicing Mm -hmm. physician, that there's no one way to be a dancer. Mm -hmm. And then there's some marvelous things from Camille Upshaw, who was part of the cast of Hamilton, who gives advice on how she moves through her audition process. How does she audition for work, whether it's concert dance or the Broadway stage. So it's just a really nice, eclectic group of dancers telling their stories, which we hope will provide insights and missing mm-hmm. pieces for the young emerging artists coming up. And I 100% agree. I think that's what mm-hmm. I really took from the book as being such a great strength was reading everyone's very unique story. And even within their unique stories, there were a lot of similar themes that they all came up with, or most of them came up with, such as your social connections and building community and establishing yourself within that. And I did find one quote which I thought sort of pulled it all together for me, and that quote was from Blakely McGuire from page 193. She wrote, every dancer's path is unique and no one can tell another how to do it. And that is the value that I really pulled from the book. And yeah, it's just fascinating to hear everyone's story and what sort of made them tick and how they were able to peel away the layers within their dance career. Yeah, absolutely. And I have also had experiences lately since the book just came out. We're hearing from people who have read it and young artists and students who have read it. And I think some of them are finding that their eyes are open to things that they didn't know existed. So it's kind of nice to read Miriam and Leonardo, who are a couple, a dance team that among many, many things, does choreography for So You Think You Can Dance. And they oh talk about, yeah. Such and a dream. Yes, mm-hmm. right? I know. And so, mm-hmm. and, and other artists as well in the book who talk about the difference between like stage work and film and television work, working in dance and film and television versus stage. And I, and I talked mm. to a couple of young artists who read those chapters and they completely thought they would go into a concert dance stage kind of a life. And now mm. they're thinking, oh, well, that sounds really interesting. That's something for me to take a look at. So I think that's great because I think so much a part of success is just constantly reaching beyond maybe where you thought you were going to go, mm-hmm. you know, and just giving yourself that inspiration and permission to just reach farther yeah and kind of reshape your path yeah but you need the examples because otherwise Mm -hmm. it's how do you do it you know what are you what are you going for yeah Mm -hmm. actually one goal of our podcast is to also help kind of open people's eyes to the different worlds you can be involved in around dance and the way you can craft a career and kind of craft a life uh, that involves dance but doesn't have to be being a dancer or a choreographer yes because there's so much out there in dance and the dance world needs so many people and so many resources and has so many at its disposal with all of all of the people who you know don't get to be the prima ballerina at abt (laughs) yes and i think it's so important that you both are doing this and that that 
is a goal for everybody that if you're involved in dance, you should try to inspire that because look, I mean, again, we just, we just were talking about, so you think you can dance, but this reality television, you know, world we're in, whether you like it or not, is really interesting how Mm -hmm. when it is applied to competition dance and you get to know the dancer stories and you see them compete and it's all on national television and beyond, that is marvelous for dance yeah. because we get that uh, that awareness out there. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and look, that didn't even exist as something in the world. This, <laughs> So you think you can dance, dancing with the stars, all these things. Right. So yes, we need people to go out and create what doesn't exist, you know, right. something new that will help propel the form forward. Yeah. Yeah, but I love the idea of all of these stories and really getting a sense of how different people have done it and different people have navigated. It sounds like different parts of the dance world. If you could just quickly give us a sense of where people can get the book and where yeah. it will be available, that would be helpful. Absolutely. For um, you know, we're thrilled that many schools have embraced it as required reading starting this September. So oh, wow. NYU, Amazing. Juilliard. Yes. <laughs> And many, many schools across the country. So we're thrilled about that. Oh, that's great. Yes. So there will be bookstores at institutions like the Juilliard Bookshop that will have it. Um, And then Amazon. It's carried on Amazon. So and it's... Mm. easily accessed by going through our website, which also is a, provides great visuals of all the dancers who are included. Um, some of their most wonderful photo shoots are in there, um, their shots from those. And so that website is www.alifeindance.com. And great. there's a, an available at Amazon strip on there, and you can click click right through and you can take a look inside the book on Amazon you know such a great function of Amazon Mm -hmm. you can read a chapter or two so uh, listeners will post that of course along with the episode description so everyone can get to the links and and find the book great I'm so curious because you mentioned before the publishing world and how that would relate to getting material published about dance how did you get this published what was your process yeah that's an interesting question and and a great one so I being a fundraiser and very mm. into cold pitching, you oh, know, yeah. everything. I love it. I think it's so fun. I think it's just a huge game huh. and I thrive on it. So I had known nothing about publishing, <laughs> but uh, made a short list of publishers that I thought, who knows, maybe they will do this mm. and cold pitch them. And one wow. was very interested and they do do this kind of Uh, resource, practical guide kind of publication for different disciplines. But when we got down to brass tacks, there was the reality that contractually you could do the whole book and then if they didn't feel like releasing it, they didn't have to. And so for us, you know, this... Hmm. just was not going to be okay. I mean, Mm -hmm. we wanted to do all of this work and put this together so that the artists would have the information. So if there was a chance of that not happening, we didn't want to be, you know, who who cared if you have a publisher, if they're not going to publish the book. (laughs) So so what I did was I fundraised the money to Um, self-publish. And Rebecca Sten is a wonderful writer as well as an incredible dancer. She is a graduate of Juilliard. She Hmm. danced with Palabolus and has her own company and created work and is a professor at the New School and has done a lot of writing, even as a critic for Dance Magazine years ago. Mm. So she and I 
put our heads together and said, let's just do this ourselves. I'll raise the money and I'll handle the publishing, which I did. And she did the editing. And and then, of course, we both did write, did some writing for the book and wrote up the interviews that we conducted in the book and helped artists with their pieces. So that's how we went about it. And we, we've been very pleased with how it has gone. It was yeah. wonderful. We went through Create Space hmm. and it's a coached process at Amazon and it's been great. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Good do it. <laughs> yeah. I just decided you wanted to do it. So going to go for it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And I think that was really good intuition on your behalf because here we're talking about how dance never gets the appropriate um, attention and who knows what a publisher would do with that market information because, hmm. yeah, who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I really enjoyed the mix of artists that you chose. I thought it was such a great, diverse mix of artists throughout New York City. And you even included an artist that works outside of New York City and what that's like. Um, How did you go about selecting the artists? And did you have any particular curatorial vision with respect to assembling? Yes, it was very important to us to have a cross-section of artists for everybody because, you know, not everybody has the same path and the same journey and the same, you know, dances in the same genre. So not everyone's a ballet dancer, not everyone's a modern dancer. So we really wanted to have a cross-section of all the different disciplines as much as possible. And we also thought it was important to look at stage and television and film and all these different outlets because, as I said before, an artist who thought they would be a stage artist could read something about Patricia Birch working in Pat Birch working in film with Grease and John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John and think so that was cool. really neat. And she was also a principal dancer in Martha Graham Company. So being able to see all of the different avenues that one could take as a dancer was important to us. And also all different ages. So we've got like a Caleb Trecker who's a young tap artist, and then Carmen de Lavalade, who's a legend, one of our mm. dance legends, um, mm. and is much older. So we we wanted this uh, diversity for sure. And we made our wish list of first the artists that we, the two of us, had worked with that we knew were deliciously articulate and mm-hmm. who have really would deliver the goods and have something to say to this group of emerging student artists. And then we made a wish list of artists whose work we really admired, didn't really know, but felt on a gut level that they would have some really good information to pass on. And, you know, some people we reached out to, we never heard back from. Some people we heard back from after they started hearing about the book being at all of these universities. They said, oh, we're so sorry. A couple of them were writing their own books. So it was in Mm -hmm. conflict of interest to them for what they were doing. And so, you know, we we put it together that way. So that was sort of the, the idea behind it. That's great. Sounds like there was more cold pitching involved there as well as reaching out to people that you knew. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's so important. No matter what you do, you should always reach out to people that you don't know. Just Mm -hmm. absolutely should. Yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. (laughs) 
It sounds like, and part of this is probably in the book, but you're a consultant and um, you have a lot of interesting advice for young people or people kind of forging their path through the dance world that isn't always obvious. It's not always the obvious thing. Are there a few tips that you would say are most important that people should keep in mind that might be counterintuitive to how most people go about things? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the challenges that we have in dance if we go through a training program is we have all of this great training on dance, Mm -hmm. actually dancing, but we have absolutely zero training on everything else. So Mm -hmm. what I find when I go into and teach master classes at colleges and universities and training programs and dance schools is that if they have anything, they have maybe how to put your resume together, Mm. which you both know from dancing professionally Some percentage of artists, dance artists, get jobs auditioning. But most of the time, it's Mm -hmm. because you're training with an artist that you love. They start to see themselves on your body. Mm -hmm. And you start to really understand what they're doing aesthetically. And all of a sudden, you're you're in that company working for that contract, whatever that is, right? That gig Mm -hmm. or you're in a full-time company member or what have you. So Mm -hmm. I think that... These are the things that these students need to be taught. And I think that so number one, my advice actually would be to all of these institutions to integrate programs and make programs around what is really happening out there, how how dancers really get jobs and to be able to give dancers snapshots on Here's what you'll make at minimum working on a Broadway contract. Here's what you'll make Absolutely. at a mid-sized dance company. Here's what you'll mm-hmm. make at a large dance company. Here's what you'll make as a, with a startup dance company. And, you know, here's what you'll make for coaching movement in a commercial and so forth. So that there's some kind of base. And then really my advice would be to hone in on your own dreams and your own thoughts and suss from them what your goals are, what you really want to do. Are you a performing artist or are you a self-producing artist? You know, Mm -hmm. are you trying to be on the stage performing or are you making your own work? And then from there, you've got to make a timeline, have a budget. You need to take a look at how is the money coming in Mm -hmm. and how are you promoting yourself? And we talked about social media, maybe in a negative light at the beginning of our conversation, but actually it's a wonderful tool if you're using it in the right way and it's free so it's a great way to build a following around your work Mm. that then becomes your audience that then becomes your donors Mm. so I think that those are all things that that have to have to have to be a part of a dancer's daily conversations with themselves and part of the educational institutions plans Mm. uh, for dancers In terms of thinking outside of the box, that is extremely important. And once you've laid all this groundwork, I think you need to take a look at what are you doing. So I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. There was an artist that I worked with whose work was very physical, very athletic. And I always love that because I think Martha Graham was right when she said dancers are the athletes of God, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. And at this company happened to have a lot of dancers who were involved in 
physical therapy and tra they were trainers and they worked in gyms. And this was like right when the gym, the whole gym craze was starting to take off. Right. <laughs> and all of a sudden we had all of these different health and racket club, crunch, equinox, all of these started sprouting up. And so I worked with this company to find resource outside of the dance world. Instead of applying for the NISCA space grant that everyone is applying to, to get rehearsal space, go and forge a relationship with Health and Racket Club, you know, mm. on 86th Street and get them to give you rehearsals, which is much nicer rehearsal space than the dance rehearsal space, by the way. <laughs> and they did. And then we were able to pull in funders who would be attracted to the work who had nothing to do with dance, but they were individuals that were into physical, into sports and into training. And so this company was really attractive to them because that work spoke to them oh. and opened them up to something new. So I think it's always great to go outside of the usual grants or the usual fundraising routes and press routes and so forth. There was a company that I worked with once that had a piece that was very much built around science. And the press that we got from Science Magazine and Outside of Dance then really stimulated the dance critics to take note and come and review this artist, which they never had before because they, they weren't interested before. But suddenly when somebody else was interested, mm. they all showed up. So wow. I think looking beyond dance is really important. Yeah. And it's so cool that you say that because like probably many consultants in different industries, you're sort of encouraging brand awareness in a way or like awareness of your own business. I mean, it is a sort of a very business approach, which as we all hear a lot, artists often need to be encouraged to take to really look at what they're doing and what their play almost in the market is. Absolutely. Going from there. Absolutely. It's very cool. Hmm. And actually, speaking of dancers being the athletes of God, you conceived of a sports series for Broadway, I noticed, including several plays focused on sports heroes and events. Were you always a sports fan? Because I feel like that's not always common in the dance world. And um, how did that kind of take shape? Yeah, I always was a sports fan. Um, oh, cool. be, again, the idea that dancers are the athletes of God. I mean, dancers are athletes, period. Mm -hmm. There's just no doubt. You know this. You're both nodding your heads very <laughs> But artists at the same time, which not all athletes are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of, I think, being an artist is really responding to what's going on in the world around you. And mm -hmm. I think that we get attuned to doing that, being in the arts. I mean, that's why we use our voices, right? That's why we make dances. That's why we, we're often responding to what is happening, either artistically or, or climate or politically, et cetera. And at the time, I had always been a sports fan, and I had always looked at dance as uh, dancers as athletes, and I always felt that way. And also grew up and had a brother who was a phenomenal athlete, so really enjoyed oh. taking all of that in. And... There are so many parallels, you know, in dance, there's so much competition, right? And mm -hmm. so, as there is in sports. And so I've mm -hmm. always been drawn to, to it for that reason. And we had in 2008 this horrendous financial crash, which I know you remember. And I just yeah. felt so strongly that we needed to take a look at in art, through art, themes of resilience and drive and how do you keep going and you know when you mm -hmm. fall down how do you get back up and mm -hmm. I felt that sports was a great fodder for that and as 
dancers, you're constantly having to do that, right? How many times do you get told, no, you're terrible. You'll never make it. Yeah. <laughs> you're not getting this job. Good luck. You know, I mean, that's that's daily, mm-hmm. right? You're both shaking your heads. Yes, very yeah. quickly. Yeah, it's daily. And so, you know, we know better than anybody and athletes do as well. And so that was just a, a great world to live in, to take a look at these figures and how they persisted and And so that was really a lot of fun. Right now, I'm producing a reading series called American Scoreboard, which is in reaction Mm. to the election and our and our current president. And it really it pulls verbatim Senate and congressional hearings and actors read them live on stage. And it's almost like a guerrilla theater. We do not Mm. rehearse, you know, and there's non-traditional casting, which was the genius of my collaborator, Chris Burney. And so we will have women playing male senators. And Mm. in the fall, we're doing the Betsy DeVos hearing, which is the education secretary, right? So we're doing that as a back to school. And Pace University (laughs) is producing it with us. And we're casting all of the senators as children. Because it is about their future. Yeah. It's about their future. And this isn't a spoof. It's not an SNL skit. It's not, you know, it's it's yeah. just the opportunity to listen to the language of our leaders. They are our leaders. Yeah. And they are laying out what is happening for us in the future. And I think one of the great things about the time that we're in right now is that everyone is paying attention. Finally. Everyone is paying attention. And mm-hmm. so I think... Again, I, I would encourage young artists to really respond to what's happening in the world, you know, mm. and definitely dancers, choreographers, because as you said before, there is so much to be created that has not been created, that has not even been invented. Yeah. And mm. it will help the form and it will inspire people in their lives at large. And I think that's just so important. Wow. Especially yeah. now. How do you guys select which hearings to read? Well, we follow the administration and Mm -hmm. um, we really look at what is rolling out. So we did the hearing on health care with Tom Mm -hmm. Price right when that was first starting. And now there will be a follow up in October and I imagine we'll revisit it. We follow the news. And in the beginning, I started with the Wells Fargo hearing, which actually Mm -hmm. was just prior to the administration. But it's an example of corporate fraud. And because there were so many questions about conflict of interest with this particular presidency, we thought that was a good thing to take a look at. Mm. And the Betsy DeVos hearing we're doing because it is a back to school time. So it's a nice time to shed light on how is the department, you know, how does this work? How do the senators work together or have difficulty working together around these issues? And it's all there in the hearing, you know, and you can hear it. And it's awesome to see the young people that come to these readings in the theater just glued and coming out knowing who the senators are. I didn't know who any senator was when I was young. I mean, I really Mm -hmm. wasn't paying attention to that. So it's great to see how they speak so fluently about who they are and what their Mm -hmm. views are. And this is a completely nonpartisan reading series. We have had Republicans and Democrats come. Being in New York City, there's a lot more Democrats that come. But but it's, and there's no talk back and there's no debate about what's right and what's wrong. It's really just using the power of the theater, which we know as dancers is strong, you know? It's strong and it's sacred and, um, Mm -hmm. and it really sets the stage to just be able to take in the moment.
Mm. So it's it's been a very powerful learning experience for all of us. Wow. That's great. Wow. With no rehearsals and such, how are the actors instructed? Are they told to, I don't know, watch footage of the, the person they're cast as and try to become that character or to try to make it minimally character driven? Or yeah, we that? do not advise them to look at anything. Actually, okay. we ask them to just read the words on the page. Okay. So they just deliver the language as they feel that it is th- with the intent that it is written. And that's mm-hmm. it. Huh. So it is really fascinating. Interesting. Yeah, it is really fascinating. But I think the power also lies in the recontextualizing just yes. the fact that it's in a different space yes. and different actors are reading it it seems to drive more focus and power to the words themselves yeah absolutely you're absolutely right and there's something about the theater whether you are going for a music concert or a dance concert or a play it is the one place where we turn everything off Mm -hmm. we turn off all of our devices Mm -hmm. and we're completely in the moment and we are having a human experience with other human beings live without a screen involved Mm -hmm. and there's something about that that I think we're all thirsting for Mm-hmm. We are all thirsting for it. I am a Tony voter, so I go to see every single show, and wow. then we vote on it before the Tony Awards, all of us who do this. And what is so amazing to me in the last couple of years is I've noticed at the end of every show, everybody stands up, and there's a standing O. I mean, I really haven't been to a show in a while where there hasn't been a standing ovation, and I have to be honest with you, I don't think they all deserve a standing ovation mm-hmm. maybe right I mean how can every mm-hmm. show deserve? I mean actually I'll take that back I think they all deserve a standing ovation because it is so hard yeah. to, to produce a Broadway show and it is these actors are all phenomenal so everybody deserves a standing ovation mm-hmm. however I just find it hard to believe that people really love especially New Yorkers who are yeah. so scrutinizing who will <laughs> mm-hmm. let you know when they think something is bad mm-hmm. that they all stand up at the end of every show and I have a little theory that they're standing up because they just had a cathartic human experience in a room Hmm. with other human beings Hmm. it is like this incredible experience for people now right where one time it was our form of you know way back our form of entertainment but it isn't anymore Mm -hmm. you know I mean people barely Hmm. go to the movies now right they're watching everything in their in the comfort of their home so it is very powerful, and I think for that reason, it is very worth it to pursue a career in dance, and it is very worth it to pursue a career in the arts because mm-hmm. it is playing a very powerful role right now, and I think that will only increase in the years to come. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think the few themes that really stuck out for me in your book with respect to pursuing a career in dance, it really was these soft skills that perhaps these artists naturally had or maybe they forced themselves to reach outside of themselves. How would a university or any program approach emphasis on these soft skills as basic as networking and communicating and also what you were talking about, resiliency, things like that, that actually can really debilitate artists and perhaps make them not pursue something. What are ways, do you think, in which programs can instill the importance of these skills? 
I think that's a great question. I think that what we were talking about earlier about really having a business program in school will give these young artists confidence because really mm. at the end of the day, it's having the confidence and the drive to do it. And we know mm -hmm. dancers have the drive. Mm -hmm. So we know that that's there because who in their right mind would become a dancer? It is the hardest thing ever. Yeah. So yeah. dancers are driven. So it's really having the confidence. And I really think that if they have some education as to how to do A, B, C, and D to set up a business structure behind what they want to do and they have a plan, they will have that confidence to be able to go out and network and form these relationships that will carry them through their career. Mm -hmm. I also think that it is important for dancers who get so intense on their training and so uh, serious to go ahead and play in their curiosity. You know, um, sometimes even though it's a creative art form, we forget how intense it gets. Oh, and, you know, yeah. dancers need to give themselves a break and just... Don't think of it as networking. Think of it as being curious about what that other person does and you want to go ask them about it, you yeah. know? So that's yes. that's all good. And I think the last thing is I think schools really need to and we need to with each other encourage dancers to just, again, reach outside of the art form. Read the New York Times from cover to cover, you know, or on the Internet, all sections. Don't just stay in the arts and leisure section. Go learn about read business books, read something about everything because that really helps you get a grander context around your work and it allows you to have a coffee table conversation which is what you need to raise money yeah. you have to be able to connect with people in other link. professions yeah, yeah who are donors because most of the time they aren't from the arts they're from other fields and Thank other God walks of life <laughs> yeah. yeah so wow yeah very good point that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I also sometimes wonder if dancers, I don't know how you would do it, but I think once you kind of realize that you're acting too and connect to the part of you that's acting as a dancer, because if you're a, a, a good dancer and you enjoy being on stage, there's at least a stage presence that you somehow have figured out how to bring to bear. I feel like that could be helpful because when you have to maybe do a cold outreach to someone or an interview or network or get in front of someone, it helps to kind of feel like you have the confidence of being accustomed to presenting yourself in a certain way. Absolutely. We have all those skills because we yeah. step on stage so you can it's just draw from them, you know, the act as if, you know, the yeah. fake it till you make it. You know, Just get out there and mm -hmm. yeah. do it and draw mm -hmm. on all of those skills that we have on stage, which are real skills. Yeah. The poise, putting the energy in your body, the, you know, all of those mm -hmm. things that we know how to do intrinsically by the time we get to stage work, actually, you know, performing professionally, but we forget when we're just in life doing the other, yeah. doing the other aspects of the work. Mm -hmm. Right. Such interesting questions. Yeah. <laughs> so do we have time to read an excerpt or two of perhaps some of your favorite passages from the book or... Sure. Yeah. Since we're sort of speaking in and around these topics of 
what these emerging artists could use and in school most especially. Why don't I read from one of my chapters a little bit about that? I'll read two little excerpts. So this, this chapter in A Life and Dance, A Practical Guide is called Have a Plan, Make Dance Your Business. Mm. Love the title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Off to a good start. <laughs> so this little section is called Dream. After being injured, I took on a couple of choreography projects. The process of choreography feels very similar to that of building a business plan. You are an architect. You are dreaming up the design and planning the construction. Play with your curiosity regarding the business of dance, just as you would play in your imagination to build a piece of choreography. Just as you dream about what the dance is, and as you improvise with movement vocabulary, dream about what you want to accomplish for yourself and beyond in your life dance. Think big, turn it on all sides, have fun with it, and call out of it that process and your specific goals. And specific is the key word. If you can see it and you can describe the specifics of your goals, that clarity gets you halfway. And in some cases, more than halfway there. So I think that that little section speaks to what we were talking about before. And I think gives, I hope, dancers permission to, again, take what they already know in looking at dance and choreography Mm -hmm. and apply it to the very practical aspect of building a business plan around their work, you know? I love it. Very naturally, you're taking a strengths-based approach to what you do. You're saying... You have this skill, and it's related to this other skill, and how can you build on that, which is really great. Absolutely. And I think once you start doing that in your process as a working artist, I think then you can really start putting solid tools together, like a timeline. So this next section is have a timeline. Mm -hmm. So plot your goals on a timeline. When do you want that project to happen? When do you want to land that performance opportunity? How much time will it take? Put it all on a calendar. A great tip. Move your goal closer in time by two months. That will give you a buffer if something goes wrong. And for sure, it will. On your calendar, plot the things that you have to do. If you have an injury and you have to deal with physical therapy, if you have a survival job, if you're a single parent, if you have an elder parent whom you have to take care of, write it down. When you're putting up a show, plot your grant deadlines and your fundraising and your promotion. If it is important that you secure some time for yourself to do things outside of dance, absolutely carve it out on your timeline. All of these things that take space, time, and force should also go on your calendar. So, so many artists, I'm floored that they just kind of float through their lives and really if you take the time to lay it out just in a one-year calendar, your goals, and then all of the things that you need to do, it's just so helpful. And then you can start finding the gaps of time to explore the things that you want to do beyond what you're doing already. Yeah. It almost sounds really obvious, but for some reason, when you lay it out that way, I feel... My, I feel like doing it myself for my own goals. <laughs> I, it's, it just seems like sometimes you need these very practical reminders. Like, oh, this is a good practical approach to setting out to do something. And Absolutely. And it seems like such a, a silly thing to even mention, right? A timeline, a calendar. But 
so often what happens is we get the to somebody outside of the arts, it, it would probably seem ridiculous. Like, are you kidding me? You don't work with a timeline or cut. But we get in a job, we get in a gig, we we are on tour, whatever we're doing, and we're completely in that. We're like we're we're yeah. entrenched in it, and then mm-hmm. we don't think about the timeline until we get out of that, you know, because it is all consuming. Yeah, it's all consuming, it and uh, you know, people outside of of dance don't get that, or outside of the arts don't get that. But it is completely all consuming. So if you can get into the habit of making a timeline and checking in with that, you'll soar because you'll be ahead of it, and then you get done with that touring job, and you're already stepping into your next piece. And the chapter and the book goes on to mention things like making a budget. Again seems like a simple thing we should but you know we make our budget and dance and then we get the gig and then we're on the road and then we leave and then we come back and we're like what was that again Mm -hmm. so keeping these things constant and what we really tried to do in the book was speak in dancer terms so when I said in that last sentence anything that takes space time and force put on your calendar because we understand that that's how we think of life in terms of space time and force because that is movement Mm -hmm. so it helps I think to read language like that versus picking up a business book, which everyone should still do anyway, (laughs) but where it's a completely different, there's no parallel drawn to the art form and that Mm -hmm. just seems so foreign. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Thank you for reading directly from the book. Thank you. There's one thing that I would love to just mention, if that's okay. please, please. And that is, I would say two things to young emerging artists. Just Go for it. Try Mm. and just push the fear out of the way and just go for it. Because what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to fail and you're going to get up and you're going to try something else. Fine. And the other thing, and this is huge, leave the drama on the stage. So one of the ways I've realized I can do so many different things, um, dance and Broadway, is because I actually ended up a single parent. I have a beautiful daughter who I've, Mm. you know, been with since she was two. Um, I mean, I had her, but then I raised her since she was two. And you have to get really efficient and parenting in general. You have to get very efficient. There's no time for the extra conversations and taking care of another dancer's drama and their, all of that. And I think that that happens in the arts. We're in the business of emotions, right? That's what happens oh. there. So if you can really just leave all of that for the stage and cut that out, you will be amazed at how much time you have to execute and accomplish your work. Mm. And I think that that's that across the board, I see when that adjustment is made, I really see artists just take off. Hmm. Interesting. That's so nice to hear. Again, sounds so practical, but yeah, it just makes a lot of sense. And it's very easy to get caught up in everything. Yeah, whether yes. it's your own drama or someone else's, just to tell yourself right now, I don't have time for that. I yeah, have to absolutely. Work. One of the greatest things Camille Upshaw from Lar Lubavitch and Hamilton on Broadway says in the book is she gives herself 24 hours to be upset about something. Wow. Like not mm. getting a job, like not landing the it's audition not much time. and stuff. It's great. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. yeah. Hours. <laughs> but it's good. It's also acknowledging that you do need to go through a mourning process, mm. but yes. don't dwell on it because yes. that is healthy. Absolutely. That is super healthy. You have to. Yes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's really great. (laughs) And that does relate to another question we had. How do you manage to balance it all with everything that you do? I think that 
what I just said definitely applies, that I just stick to the task at hand. And I if mm. the phone is ringing and I'm trying to get something done, I just do not pick it up. You know, I mean, just yeah. just be totally vicious about protecting your time and your goals and everything. And then I think balance is a key word. When you have balance, you're happy, mm-hmm. you know, and so that only fuels you to do more. It's really it's fuel, right? It energizes us. And I think mm-hmm. when you don't have balance, you're miserable, you know, so, so making true. sure you have that healthy personal time that you have, if you're a parent, parenting time, if you, that your hours aren't ridiculous. And it's hard when you're a dancer because you have to work so many hours and yeah. a lot of times multiple things, you know, you're doing multiple things and, but just really try and reach for, you know, the quiet time that you need and your training still, because, you know, you need to keep your body, like just, reaching to make a slot for all of those things and planning. And I think that's really, that's how I, that's how I do my days and my career. Just try and plan that balance out. Yeah. Planning is key. It is. Interesting. Balance is key. It's so hard in New York City. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it is. So true. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, we'll definitely post links to all of the resources and everything. Um, You're your, your book and, and everything else that we've talked about. Well, thank you so much for having me. And this is such a wonderful program that you run. You should both feel just so proud of it. And listening to all of the interviews was, was very inspiring. So thank you. Thank Great. you for having me. Thank you so much. That's the highest compliment. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>